Hello, and welcome to Mark and Carrie, a podcast presented by the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. Hello, Blythe. Happy 2023. And happy 2023 to you as well. I see we now have to put the corporate sponsor on the front. Yes, we do. And we'll be pausing for commercial breaks as well. Excellent, excellent. (laughs) So we start a new year and uh, guess what? Familiar tragedy. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think over the last like four days, there have been consistent um, public shootings, um, something that was happening throughout the fall and the winter. The most recent was this morning in Half Moon Bay, just south of San Francisco, and then the one that was um, in Southern California in Monterey Park, which is an Asian American community in Los Angeles as they were celebrating the Lunar New Year. So is there any sense in trying to draw individual lessons from each of these and aggregate them up as social scientists like to do? Or is it just simply the case that we have a sick culture and people have access to weapons and really bad things happen in lots of different communities? I mean, I would like that there'd be some rational reason for this, but I think it's what you just described. And and this ties into, of course, what we'll talk about later, which is Congress. But there's just no political will. I mean, the more this this keeps happening, of course, you get, you know, thoughts and prayers and this is so horrible. But, yeah, you know, the con- Congress is just unwilling to move on this. I mean, there was some movement in the fall around uh, around background checks, but nothing that even comes close to the assault weapons bill. Right. But the, the guy in the first one was, what, 72 years old? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he would have passed any background check that you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my, my question is, you know, not to exculpate or to say that the status quo is acceptable. It's not. But really beyond sort of shouting at Congress to do more, what specifically could they do? I mean, I'm trying to imagine like the United Kingdom after they had a gun tragedy called Dunblane in the 1980s or whether it was New Zealand or mm-hmm. Australia when they had their Port Arthur massacre. There was just a sort of like, right, no more guns, right? Yeah. And in smaller countries where gun ownership is actually a lot less common, I can imagine you can kind of get away with that when the vast majority of public opinion is with you. But it's not just kind of electoral politics. I mean, could there are more guns than people. Yeah. I mean, I I guess, you know, the frame has changed over the years from gun control that is a gun problem to now mental health, which I believe. I mean, but mental health is such a broadly defined term as well. I mean, what does that actually mean? I mean, it's so many of the same things that we've talked about in the past. It's usually men. It's usually men that, you know, that are living by themselves, you know, aren't necessarily connected to all of the, the various um, things that a person might be connected to. And I I don't know. I mean, as long as the Second Amendment is still here, there's just I don't you don't see any sort of big policy measure. Yeah, but not to belabor the point. I mean, imagine you had a magic wand, right? And you could basically do the policy measure. What would it be? What would actually like really try and put a crimp in this? Yeah, I know, right? Because if you if you do an assault weapons ban, there's still the presence of guns that will be yeah, that will be out and, out and available. And I then, believe in both in both of these um and both of these recent killings, the it was pistols. Yeah. And so and then you do the sort of individual level behavioral stuff of trying to build more community for people, whatever that means. And that sort of stuff, I mean, that's like a whole, you know, the social capital sort of thing. I I guess I always think We've become so angry, and now that anger is really outpouring into the into our public lives, and you know, we talk about how other countries are so violent and dangerous. I mean, we're just as violent and dangerous as, as other oh, places. No, we're, we're way off the scale. I mean, yeah. if you look at any of these graphs in terms of you know homicide.
homicides attempted homicides whatever it's like wow we are number one yeah you know by like a factor of 10 if not more what's your what's your take on this in terms of the magic wand policy well, it's just, you know, after, you know, the school shootings and now these things and, you know, it's just what, one mass shooting a month, nightclubs, you know, everything's yeah. been hit. It, I don't think there's a tipping point anymore. I think we've become sadly inured to it. Yeah. And it's also such a sort of an endemic part of what American culture has become. I just don't actually, I'm not sure there's actually a solution other than literally you need to take all the guns away from people and that's never going to happen. So, you know, unfortunately it just becomes this kind of awful thing that we live with because that's who we are. You know, one of the things that stuck with me after 2016 and the Trump election was lots of liberals saying, you know, this is not who we are. And I just kept thinking to myself, no, this really is who you are. Yes. Yeah. Right. We need to stop pretending. You know, the f- the first step is recognition. <laughs> yeah. This is who you are. Yeah. So sticking with California, it's uh, went from a summer of intense uh, drought on top of the longest drought in history to atmospheric rivers. Have you have you ever heard of these things? No, I haven't. I'm laughing only because I'm laughing at a gallows humor. I mean, California has just it really has been like the ark and like you know every other biblical theme that we can that I can think <laughs> of. Um, and you know, I read an article that San Francisco has become such a, a city where no one wants to live because of the floods. There was raw sewage then in the streets, and just thinking. But, you know, this town that, you know, has so much money, blah, blah, blah. And they can't even control their uh, the sewers. Um, I had not heard of that. And it just looked like rain on top of rain on top of rain. And the uh, the people, you know, walking through the hip wastewater. I mean, you just there's no the, they're still in a drought stage. Right. Because it, it falls down so fast on earth that is so dry and compacted that it doesn't really absorb it. I saw one interesting piece on this that basically some people in the wine country are very happy about this because, you know, they actually, they are actually going to have a fantastic vintage because of all of this, uh, all this water. Production was down to one third of what it was before and like now we're going to have a bumper year. So at least somebody's getting the upside. But, you know, the problem with this is to actually deal with it, you need all those really difficult things that we're not very good at, like public investment to build things like like, you know, new aquifier supplies and reservoirs and all those things that you could do that would catch it. But of course, you know, that would require long-term planning and actually not having a chronic aversion to debt because debt is how you do investment. But, you know, we've been there before. Maybe if this continues year after year, though, there could be an upside in it. The only way to deal with it is to adequately infrastructure the hell out of it. So maybe there's an upside to this. I mean, all the money that came from Biden's infrastructure bill, you think rebuilding of old dams, like all the stuff that, that needs to be done. But I mean, California really feels like it's it's at the it's at, you know, experiencing all this stuff that the rest of the country or at least big parts of it hasn't haven't yet hit, though. I mean, there are tornado random tornadoes all the time and like all this other random weather. So I don't know that I, what I just said is actually accurate of anything. But to your what you just said about debt led me to think about where we are right now. And actually, I don't know where we are with the debt ceiling negotiations, because I don't know if the I mean, Janet Yellen came out and was like, we're on the verge. Everybody right. get ready to like, you know, boil their water and just eat that for breakfast, <laughs> lunch and dinner. But I don't know where they are, where the White House is in this uh, in this um, in this game with Congress. 
as I understand it, and I try not to understand it because it's just one of those brilliant self-inflicted wounds that we do to ourselves every single time. This is the result of basically McCarthy's. I mean, we'll have to talk about McCarthy's sort of like, do you like me? Will you date me? Was it 11 times, 12 times? <laughs> 15, 15 times, oh my god, 15. right. So he's basically <laughs> promised, like, all the UFO files, all the Kennedy files, and the location of the Raiders of the Lost Ark to, like, the loonies, in exchange for doing this. This is the payoff that you actually get this. So I think the White House strategy is basically let them do it, because it just makes them look like loonies, and ultimately they'll fold. Now, will they ultimately fold? See, I don't watch the day-to-day -day on this because I don't think it's interesting. Ultimately, it's a binary. You're either going to increase the debt ceiling, which is just a stupid way of saying, do you have the resources to pay your bills? Yes. Are you going to do it? You probably should, right? So are they going to pay the bills or are they going to start defaulting on the bills? If they do, that's an act of self-harm. And I can imagine there are many members of the Republican caucus who are really are just like, come on, let's just burn it all down, right? Will they get that far? Maybe. Maybe. I think there's a few of them that want to try and do that. Then if the White House isn't managing the situation as you actually go into default, you know, it's interesting. We know this from other countries. You don't just go straight to default. You go into a technical default. Then the technical default is adjudicated upon <laughs> whether it's still really a technical default or a real default, right? So there'll be lots of shenanigans around us. But at the end of the day, we can pay our bills, Right, and they're, yeah. they're it's so bonkers. It's bills we owe to ourselves by and large. It's absurd, right? So there is no fiscal crisis. There is simply a refusal to pay your bills. And the weird thing about this is, this is the party of fiscal probity. That if you said to them, you know, should you repay your debts and should you pay your bills, you like, absolutely. That's the one thing you should always do. Okay, so why are you then doing this? It's weird. I mean, back to your dating analogy, it really is. Then the technical default is just we're on a break. Then we're, we're slowly, we're, we're working our way towards something much larger. But I, I think the far right, the Lauren Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens have said, we like, well, let's just do this and see what happens because it's never happened before. So it can't be that bad. Well, I mean, you know, lots of people haven't had cancer before, but that's not an argument for getting <laughs> cancer, yes. is it? Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. ultimately, though, they may be right in a perverse way, which is to say, you know, if people think the United States can't pay its bills, then maybe there's a problem. But given that they can, you could probably like default for a couple of weeks and people will freak out. And of course, the rating agencies will, will rate you from double A to single A and everyone will go, ooh, and your bond prices will spike a little bit. But, you know, will it be a permanent state? Will it be constantly like this? Mm -hmm. Maybe. I mean, we've we've got standoffs now over everything. So maybe we just, maybe we just never pay bills anymore, right? Well, I think that's the bigger question I have is why does this always come around every, I, it feels like every other month, but why, why can't there just be a long-term thing? Because they don't, they don't want a long-term thing. They want to be able, look, if the Democrats win, it's very useful to have this thing because then you can just say, they're spending like drunken sailors again. And then, yeah, you know, you beat right, your chest and all right. the rest of it. No, oh, we have to draw a line in the sand. And you go, all right, but if that's true, then like really the yield on our debt should be like at Argentina levels, right? Because we've spent more than we've got and we're totally bankrupt, right? So then why is it still the global safe asset? Why are rates basically a response directly of yeah. the Fed's desire to like do whatever it wants on inflation rather than being driven? by random um, uh, desires of out-of-control bond markets. I mean, it's just, at the end of the day, rubbish. So you're saying, interestingly enough, that it's all politics. What an absolute shock. Right, right.
I mean, for me, you know, the the minutia was really interesting to uh, to read about. But I think the big thing, which is, of course, no surprise to anybody, is that it's just a preview of what's to come, which is to say that nothing's right. very little will get done. He's always going to have to be negotiating with that part, um, with that part of the of his party. I mean, there are there were interesting things in the ne- negotiations that I think the far left, the squad was really interested in. Right. Take uh, term limits for committee chairs, like really remove some of the power mm-hmm. from the leadership and give it to committees, like all that sort of stuff. Um, I think on the real detailed side of things, I thought it was most interesting that there are three hard right people on the rules committee. The rules committee in the House dictates everything. And uh, and so we'll see what actually gets to the floor for like real votes, because they're going to be the real sticklers to make sure that they get what they want to the floor. So so does that enable or disable them, right? If they're sticklers about rules, that implies even less happens. Like, can they make more happen by being on the rules committee or is it just a block? Well, right. They can make more happen that they want to see happen. I mean, the other thing that, you know, that I think Lib, squishy Lib Dems are hoping is that the hard right and the left, like, come together to, like, you know, um, to stop whatever the uh, the majority of the committee wants to do. I don't think that's probably will happen. But it gives them a lot of power. An old Congress, a long term serving congressman from southeastern Michigan, John Dingell, he had this famous quote that said um, he sat on the rules committee and he said, you control substance and I control the rules and I'll screw you every time. And that's just, I mean, the rules committee, they, you know, they really are the gatekeepers. Um, as you just described. Interesting. So let's uh, switch to some Democrat bashing now. Good. So after outrage and outrage and full outrage about the fact that Donald Trump may or may not have had some files about Macron lying around Mar-a-Lago, it turns out that Joe keeps top secret stuff in his Corvette. Is that right? But then what was even more interesting is that he didn't know they were there. I mean, this is stuff left over from the Obama presidency. How can stuff be left over from the Obama presidency in his car? I don't know. You don't like this is the point, right? Like Donald Trump is a clown. He doesn't know what he's doing. I'm a pro. I've been doing this for a long time. And yet you still have the is still in your glove box. What? Yeah, but this strikes me, this whole thing strikes me as a bit weird. I mean, if it's Obama level stuff in his car that he's had in storage and he completely forgot about, well, you know, we're all we're all human, right? But isn't the not that I'm exculpating here, right? But isn't the whole thing kind of just an example of how pathetic politics has become? Okay, Trump has some files that he's kept. He used to be president. Some people used to take the (laughs) ashtrays home when they left the hotel, right? Some people take souvenirs. Some people take that. Who knows what Harry (laughs) Truman smuggled out of the White House, right? But we just didn't care. Now it's like, oh my God, Trump has done something terrible again because he's a terrible man. So then, of course, when you set up that as the standard, it turns out that people who handle sensitive government documents like the government um, end up maybe taking them home for the weekend. And then you've got a problem. I mean, isn't this just all kind of pathetic? Yes, it is. A new low for patheticness, I don't know if that's a word, is um, then this just opens the door to all the investigations that the Kevin McCarthy-led Congress is going to do. And so it's the confidential documents found in the garage. But also, clearly, Hunter Biden's laptop is there, along with his gigantic stash of cocaine that is sold out of his dad's garage. So it's just it's like, you're just like, what are you guys doing? I mean, how did the White House not know about this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it strikes me as, you know, one salient difference might be the sort of like, the person with the sensitive files is the current sitting president, rather than the person who used to be president. Yeah. But, you know, let's not split hairs on this one. The whole thing seems to be a bit mad. 
Well, I know you've been traveling. Did you have you been to Davos with your with your fellow peers? Ah, uh, no. <laughs> Once again, I think I think the advert just got lost. The advert. <laughs> I think I think the invitation just got lost in the post somewhere. Uh, no, they they had a sort of a face off between uh, left and right, I believe, in the form of Neil Ferguson, my countryman, representing the right and freedom and all good things, and then Adam Tooze, that noted communist, uh, arguing <laughs> for like you know actually taxing people with billions. Uh, no, the entire thing is beyond farcical at this point. I did a, a tweet a couple of years ago where I went back through World Economic Forum reports about what was going to happen next year. Yeah. And, you know, apparently by this point in time, we're in 2023, right? We should all have <laughs> cyber connectivity in our oh, brains directly okay. into the 5G metaverse. Yeah, it's yeah. Compl- it's just rich people talking bollocks to each other and then going skiing. <laughs> like, just, just not even interesting. Move on, move on. Tell you what is interesting, though the uk oh tell me more <laughs> well i don't know if you I, I don't know if you've been following this but just when you think you're just going to get a week without a scandal then you get another scandal so the latest one and I, I'm, I'm trying to get this right because the details are of course murky and subject to parliamentary investigation <laughs> and in no way am i impugning the characters of anyone involved but it seems there's a connection between the person who arranged an 800 grand loan for boris johnson Uh, A man who needs 800 grand just to basically pay off his family members, by the way. (laughs) Okay. And the guy who became the head of the BBC. I'm not sure what the connection is. And then it turns out the chair of the Tory party, who's the guy who set up the YouGov polling organisation, may or may not, I have heard, be uh, non-compliant with certain tax matters. Oh, geez. So, So it really, you know, again, it's just like phenomenally rich people who should know better who spend most of their time telling everyone else that we don't have any money and we can't pay for anything. I just spend all their time not paying their taxes. Yeah. Huh, and then, and then, they, then they fly to Davos to talk about how clever they are. It's just like, oh, <laughs> right. God. And actually, and then what I'm going to do to help the world with all my, like, gigantic sums of money that I work so hard for and let me... Right, like, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, once we all have cybernetic interfaces and we can, like, directly tap through 5G into the wired world yeah. and into the meta, yeah. I mean, then we don't have to worry about poverty or healthcare, no, right? No. Although, have you tried ChatGPT GPT at all? It, I, I I can't comment. I think I'm oh, I going see. to plagiarize myself. Oh, I, well, this is one of the questions I had is that, you know, I've had, I just was playing around with it and it does, I mean, it can give you like a sonnet and, you know, and so it's really impressive in that way. But, you know, I also am convinced that there are little people on my computer that are actually doing this as opposed to the, as opposed <laughs> to the actual intelligence. But, you know, maybe they were, that'll be implanted into our brains as well. And that'll make us even smarter. Well, this else. actually, no, this, I mean, we need to have a conversation about this. We meaning us in higher education. Yeah. right? So if this thing can basically do the fall following uh i'm about to do a class on sort of global money okay and let's say that i say that the the most cited authors on this are a b and c and i say write me 1500 words on the end of the Bretton woods regime with a focus on the works of a b and c and it can do that yeah then what do i do in terms of signing essays i know right yeah right I mean, if we need an AI bot to sniff out writing by an AI bot, yep. we're done. Yep. Yeah. Right. So I think we're ba- that. I mean, if we go down this line, I've got this terrible feeling that we're going to be back to. And the assessment for this class, rather than being continuous assessment based upon projects and particularly papers, is going to have to be basically quizzes. Yeah. It's going to have to be, you know, back to blue book midterms, because how else are you going to figure out if people actually have been doing the course 
or whether an AI assistant is doing all the work for them. Yeah, I did think about this. I mean, if you if I could get it to write a paper, an academic paper for me, like who actually wrote the paper? I mean, yeah, who wrote the paper? I mean, it's like well, the there was writer. there was a piece in Nature about this. Uh, they've just adjudicated at some level of authority that uh, AI assistants can't be listed as authors because they can't give consent. Oh, that's super interesting. Right. Yeah. So even if you wow. use it then you're using it more than a tool. If it generates, it's an author, but it can't yeah. be an author because it can't give consent. Right. I mean, we're already into sort of like Asimov's paradox of robotic life at this yeah. point. Yeah, wow. Huh. The, um, um, Fun times. Yeah, and they can't, it can't give consent. Wow, okay. That, I really that, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I really exactly. think about that. Yeah. In a similar vein, but very, but very different, but just thinking about the tech world, Microsoft just announced this week that they're laying off another 10,000 people. There are all the round of layoffs just before uh, the holidays, Amazon, Meta, Salesforce, Twitter, et cetera. It seems to me that this is a very small percentage of the population and that these are probably the people that can be rehired the most quickly out of anybody who gets laid off. But does this signal to you anything about the larger economy or is it just one of those things that the mainstream media is focused on and... It's just a headline. I, th I think you're absolutely right. I mean, like the total number of people at the whole labor force that work directly for the fangs or for fangs type companies is, I think, about 4% of the labor market. So it's not that big. Secondly, if they are the ones that are skilled, they can get hired back, et cetera, right? But a really simple way to think about this is an analogy with the stock market. Go back to the pandemic, right? Remember when the stock <laughs> market like basically went up 60%? Yes. And anybody at all who had decided to short hotels and airlines and go long tech was a, an investment genius, right? So, th so, th so the index like goes up sixty percent, and then the next year it goes down by thirty percent. So you're still up half of that difference that you got. You're still up half yeah. that boost, but it feels like a loss. Now, let's think about what happened to all these firms. They are all the people that basically made hay during the pandemic. They're the people that added delivery drivers. Yep. They're the people that invested all that money into the metaverse that nobody wants, whatever, right? And eventually it turns out that when things normalize, you kind of have to get rid of all those people you've overhired. Yeah. Yeah, that, right. That's it. Right. No, nothing, nothing to see. Move along. It's called mean reversion. It happens all the time. That's it. There's one way that this is getting interesting. There are these firms that activist hedge funds that get, you know, two, three, four percent of a company's shares, which gives them a controlling stake because the shares are so diver so diversely held, if that's a phrase, but you know what I mean. Uh, and then they can start basically telling the board what to do. So a couple of these funds are now basically getting into tech land, and that's new for them because they've never done that before. When tech was on the up, you're not going to try and get in there with a minority position and tell the board what to do. Mm -hmm. Now that they're a little bit weaker, some of that's beginning to happen, which just suggests that tech is just becoming more of an ordinary sector mm -hmm. rather than the extraordinary sector. Mm -hmm. But then again, you know, to go back to our um, AI bot stuff, right? If that really, I mean, Microsoft has just decided to invest billions in yeah. this chatbot thing. Yep. So, you know, maybe that is the thing that opens up and transforms, you know, the next wave of tech. We don't know. Yeah. It, but I get your point that they hired so much during the pandemic. And so in some ways, they're just back to zero. They hired so much and they laid off. And so they're just right. back to where they, they were in um, pre-pandemic pre pre hiring. Right. Um, All right, so anyway, enough of this sort of like floating around in the UK and the US. Let's go somewhere else. And of course, the bleeding sore of humanity is, of course, Ukraine. Yes, yes. Uh, 
And, you know, so now the Ukrainians are saying the Russians are getting ready for a big offensive. We don't. We need to go on the offensive. You need to give us these tanks. There's been this big stromash, and the Germans, who basically at the end of the day care more about their economic model and selling exports than they do about anything else, are a bit hesitant to just do that because that means the end of any future relationship with Russia. And then they have this feeling, at least German industry, that unless they have access to cheap Russian inputs, they will never be competitive against the Chinese. So this becomes an existential question for, you know, for German industry, in a sense. That's one interpretation. It's, it's vaguely possible. The other one is that we're just not thinking this through. So you know that you're up against a regime that has a win-at-all-cost mentality. Putin has staked his credibility, if not his life, mm -hmm. on winning this thing. So every time that you provide a new technology that gives the Ukrainians an advantage, which you should, then what happens is they need to double down on their efforts, and it makes the conflict perhaps more intense, more, more destructive even than it will be. Now, at the end of the day, if you've decided that Putin is bluffing, he will never use nukes, nobody will ever use nukes, and we need to defeat this guy, then you have to supply the tanks because otherwise the Ukrainians can't do what they need to do. But if you do supply the tanks and you really change the impetus on the battlefield, who's to say that he doesn't start using battlefield nuclear weapons against those tanks? Right. And if he does, what do you do next? Right. Once that's once the genie's out of the bottle, yeah. where do you go with this one? And, you know, this seems to me the bit of, you know, if you make a bet that he's never going to use them, then everything you do makes sense. If you make a bet that it is highly possible he will use them, it's not clear that this is this this is the this strategy is going to lead to anything other than that. Your interpretation about the relationship between Russia and China is vastly different than what you you know reading the, just the headline news that you know the reluctance of Germany to give the Panthers they can come up with great names for these things too. Yeah, you know, based on World War Two and you know they militarize and blah blah nah. blah. So I, that's, nope. yeah. That's so much more interesting, the chessboard, the political chessboard that's being played right now. It's political economy, follow the money, yes. right? I mean, at yeah. the end of the day, if they torch their relationship with Russia, what happens to the big German chemical manufacturers who need tons of gas for their operations? Yeah. Are they going to get that from American LNG that's been bid up in price all the time? Right. If you have a look, I mean, this is this is, this, this is interesting. This takes us into another direction, but uh, I got an email from an analyst this morning checking this out. If you look at, I think it was West Texas crude, there seems to be a floor price of about 70 it's just not dropping below that. Mm -hmm. And even though gasoline um, um, consumption in the United States has flattened and has actually declined a little bit since the pandemic, China's opening up again. Mm -hmm. So once China goes full pelt on this stuff, then basically that oil price is going to go back up, gas prices are going to go back mm -hmm. up, and then inflation's going to go back up. So, you know, this we're not out of the woods on this one yet. There's this feeling that, like, inflation has turned and if we just supply tanks to Ukraine, all will be well. Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced that that's really following through. Hmm. I, on, on that note, it, it has been interesting looking at just the view of the American press over the last few weeks about the sort of China as much more vulnerable than it has in the past, like the, the switching oh, co yeah. COVID po policy. I mean, the declining population thing, I just shrugged my shoulders, like, didn't demographers predict this like 50 years ago? And now like the Washington Post is like, 
that there's no more people left in China. And then they show a picture of like a really busy street and you're like, this doesn't quite, yeah, anyway. I know. Yeah, it doesn't, no, no, it's funny. I mean, if you're old enough like me, I remember the last time this was done, it was done with Japan. Oh yeah, right. They're exactly yeah. the same stories, right? Yeah. I mean, it was like, yes, but they're an old society. So the technological advancement won't really mar. And at the end of the day, USA will win against the terrible <laughs> Japanese. And it was, just, I mean, honestly, word for word. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny, there's people in DC who kind of like, you know, they're like cicadas. They come out of the ground every 17 years. <laughs> yeah. And the last time they were visible was like they were banging on about Japan and trade deficits or whatever. And now, you know, the same people are back and it's all about China. And it's like, oh, for God, it's like a cottage industry. Yeah. Oh, that's really funny. Just squish out Japan and put in China. Yeah. And have, have the the, the one who does have a problem with this, the Japanese said this yesterday, in fact, is like, you know, they really do have a problem because they just can't do immigration. Right. Yeah. And they are astonishingly old. So they are actually, I think, now 25, 26% of the population is over 65. Uh And, you know, you can automate a lot of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, an economy is nothing more than the number of people, the number of hours work and the capital you work with. They've got good capital, but they're running out of people. QED, the place shrinks. That's it. But look at it this way. I mean, one one of the major problems that we have with climate change is trying uh, trying to square energy production and consumption with GDP growth. So maybe if we all just shrink a little, yeah, yeah, maybe that helps. Yeah. That's the degrowth argument. You just do it by not having any kids. <laughs> well, in Japan is interesting because, of course, trying to increase their population and giving financial incentives to women to have more babies, which has really gone nowhere, too. So Yeah, it I doesn't mean, work anywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, no, one of the fascinating things with that, apparently, Len Seabrook told me this one ages ago. Sorry for invoking you there, Len, but your name popped up. Uh, that when you look at immigrant populations, the first generation maintains the fertility of the home country. Okay. The second one basically closes the gap to the host country by about two thirds. And then by the third generation, they're completely normalized to whatever they do in that country. Oh, whoa. Okay. So given that you move from poor that. to rich and rich has less kids, it's just a machine yeah. for generating less growth. Right. Then there's my favorite one, which I talk about all the time, which is the total collapse of uh, male sperm counts around the world as well. Right. Right. Yeah. So throw that into the mix and it's like, we won't be like, um, if it wasn't for immigration and it's been historically low for the past two years, the American the American population growth has yeah. come, to, come to a halt, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're all in the same boat here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe this is then the solution to climate change is exactly what you just said, the degrowth, like the population subscribe, we use less. Yeah, just don't have any kids. Like, I mean, literally after two generations, problem solved, except there's no more human civilization. But what can you do? It's okay. We're in the, we're like a, you know, in some spaceship in the sky with our AI embedded. With with our millionaires from, uh, who have been to Davos. Yes, exactly. Right. They'll take their personal spaceships (laughs) and we'll colonize Mars because it's such a nice place. Yeah. It's so nice in the summer. So we're winding up now, just a couple of things to finish with. Um, you've heard of this thing called the Euro, right? I I have, yeah, way back. Have you heard of the Sur? No, I haven't. The Sur, <laughs> I think I'm getting this right, which is really weird because in English it sounds like the thing that you pump poop through. Yeah. Uh, the Sur <laughs> is, is the proposed joint currency between Argentina and Brazil. Which really begs a question, why would the Brazilians want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, and you know, and I, I suppose they're going to pull out all the same arguments that you did for Europe about, you know, human, you know, lower transactions costs, and maybe they'll have a digital currency but maintain their own currencies, whatever. But it's funny; I can't help think that sort of like currencies now are one of the things that politicians turn to, like bike lanes. So here's here's the awful truth about bike lanes in dense cities, right? New York's a classic example. When you put in bike lanes, 
you reduce the available space for traffic to flow. Okay. So you end up with more congestion because you don't reduce the number of cars or trucks. Right, right, right. And you end up with more pollution. So you end up with like a small number of bikers breathing in toxicity mm -hmm. while no one gets anywhere fast. Right. But everybody does it because it's one of those things you can be seen to do. And then you've got a result you can point to in yeah. four years. I can't help but think, but sort of like, you know, talking about money and currencies and these types of projects has become the equivalent of that for politicians, right? You know, fixing Argentina's long run productivity problem, mm, really hard, right? Fixing Brazil's totally weird stratified culture and polarized politics, mm, really hard. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could just have a joint currency and celebrate that instead. And I think the, the name when you said it, it sounded kind of cool too. That's sure, it. How many yeah. su how many sewer is it to the dollar? <laughs> yeah. Very well, like you and like problem solved. Okay, we can you check that off the the list of things to do. Um, you got any closers? What did you find? It was weird this week. I do well. This is much lighter than a unified currency in South America, and this goes back to Davos and you know what are the world's richest men doing with their money that they work so hard to get? And this is Peter Thiel. So he in the oh, fall God. launched a conservative um, dating app called The Right Stuff. And at first, there were a number of downloads, like I think 44,000 downloads in November when it first appeared. But now it's like at 11,000. And just as a point of comparison, um, uh, Tinder gets about a million, about 900,000 a month. So these are pretty low numbers. Uh, so it looks like the right stuff is is not going in the right direction. I think he has like a 2.1 rating on the in the Apple store as well. And I guess it just made me laugh that, first of all, I don't know why Peter Thiel is like backing a dating app, but also that uh, that it joins a number of sort of right leaning, just like their left leaning dating apps. And the, one of the remarks in the report, um, because I was doing a deep dive into hard news, was that the right stuff was just all Mitch McConnell staffers trying, <laughs> trying to looking for a <laughs> So I just thought that was I just thought that was funny and um, it's it's a kind of a weird I mean you know when people are rich enough to obsess about politics I guess this is what you do with your time when you're staring mortality down the face when the blood transfusions no longer work <laughs> but I, it does beg a question I mean I, I th thankfully you know I, I've I don't do Tinder any of these things you know I'm far too old and everything's good at home we're fine right um, but if I did. Would politics be the first thing I think of? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, is it really just like, well, most important to me is that someone has got a working knowledge of Marxism <laughs> and is a sort of, you know, an eco-feminist. That's, right. that's my two, two, right. two main criteria right yeah. there. And maybe for some people it is, but I just don't think I think this way or, or most people really think this way. I, it's, yes. it's a kind of, it's a vanity project that's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, that's really all that needs to be said. On the other side of, or not on the other side, but one last thing that we have to talk about is Prince Harry's book, Spare. That didn't we talk about it last time? No, it hadn't been released yet. It had. It had. But we said everything that we possibly no, could say, didn't like, we? No, there's, there's oh, so much on. more to say. So get ready, listeners. All right, go. We got an All right, hour. You, you've no, got two minutes. Go. Uh, here's what I had to say. I mean, there's lots of revelations in it, and he's a, really mad at his family as well. And so, you know, he's written like a I'm quite right. They're a mad family. 400 page book of, of about it. Um, I think the stuff that. I mean, he comes across, I think, as a sympathetic human slash someone who just can't let go of uh, of anything at all. I think the thing that's most fascinating to me is that he has said that there was enough for two books. And so is there a second book waiting out there for us? And what will it be called? Did you um, did you listen to any of the uh, excerpts from it or 
pain no, and nothing, nothing. I mean, <laughs> everything gets sort of excerpted and distilled down and, you know, here's the main points and all that sort of stuff. There was a kind of like brilliant tragic mini review in The Guardian, which I posted on Twitter because I thought it was quite funny. Other people thought it was really kind of harsh. Uh, but no, I mean, ultimately... It's just, it, he's a sad character trapped in a sad family drama with the weirdest family in Britain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's that's pretty much it. And, you know, just crazy things to think about. They're not from the book, but just sort of, you know, has happened to them as a couple, right? So imagine, you, imagine you're Meghan Markle, right? You're a self-made bootstrapper. You were pulling in 70G an episode on a long-running series. You're, you know, everything's fine. Your world's good. And you meet this guy, and you're like, all right, whatever, we'll go for it, right? And one of the first things they say to you is, please hand over your passport. You're no longer in control of where you travel. Yeah. And please hand over your driver's license because you'll never drive yourself again. Yeah. And that's just a glimpse into what is normality for this quote-unquote family. And there's a bit in the book, apparently, and this is the only bit that I found any resonance with from, from Harry's point, really, was he imagines, apparently, at one point, what's it like to be able to make your own friends? Yeah. I mean, right? yeah. Because, in a, you know, it's a bit like it's the curse of the rich, right? Yep. When you're rich and your friends are normal, you tend to no longer be normal, you know, tend to no longer be friends with them. Because what happens is at some point you'll do them a favor because you've got all that money. And to you, it's nothing. But to them, it's an enormous amount of money. And what it does is it creates a debt obligation. Yep. Even if you never have to pay it back, you're indebted to this person. So the relationship becomes one of sort of servitude and like yeah. keeping you happy. And then you hate that and the thing breaks. It's just all crap, right? Now, just substitute money for royal, right? Yeah. And yes, people will always be friendly to you. But in a sense, it's kind of like all pre-programmed as to who your friend is, what your social circles are, etc. And people always relate to you as this thing right rather than actually just as a normal person so i can relate to sort of you know the sadness of like never being normal but at the same time that's what enables you to write a book like this and basically spoff 150 million out of netflix yeah exactly. so i'm not that sympathetic yeah. at the end of the day yeah no but i think your point about that there's just a weird family in general like yeah and i think that probably comes through pretty pretty clearly i love the image i love the image of the current king of england wandering around a palace in his uh slippers and dressing gown holding a teddy bear <laughs> or doing headstands in his underpants yeah and yeah it's yeah this <laughs> you know could you think of anything more dysfunctionally british it's just brilliant oh geez um well this seems like a good place to maybe end but start 2023 well, exactly. I mean, yeah. let's think about all the fabulous, fun things that we've spoken about. I mean, we opened with the tragedy of gun violence, our inability to do anything useful with 75 trillion tons of water, um, why we are having trouble paying our bills when we don't have trouble paying our bills, uh, why Kevin tried 15 times to get a job nobody with the right <laughs> mind would want. Uh, why Joe leaves things in his car, yeah. why the Tory party manages to get more corrupt every single week, why tech layoffs don't matter, Ukraine may be much more dangerous than we think, and why Brazil would possibly want to get into bed with with uh, Argentina for currency. Yeah. Oh, and the right stuff. Yes, right. And we have with wow. Prince Charles walking around, or King with a teddy King, bear. King, yeah, Charles King. And King Charles and the teddy yeah, bear. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, th I think all I can say, having summed all that up, is a, a great quote from a series from Britain called Dad's Army, which was about these pensioner volunteers in the Home Guard in 1940 on the edge of the Germans' uh, invasion. And there was a Scottish character in there who was one of this, the old soldiers. And he only ever said one thing. 
We're doomed. Doomed. <laughs> Outlook bleak. Forecast doomed. Great to see you. I'll keep smiling. Yes, though. So yes. you. <laughs> All right. See you in a few weeks. Bye. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.